Hello and welcome to episode number 373 of the Armin Show podcast. We are in person. We're at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Our special guest here, we have Professor Jana Galus. Jana, welcome to the show. Thank you, Armin. I'm delighted to be here. I'm very glad to be here. You have made UCLA much cooler in my eyes from today. <laughs> Not that it wasn't cool already. <laughs> now, we are here. You do research. You are a professor. You have written many articles, some of which I have read. How would you describe how you got to here, the research you do, and why you chose that category in the first place? Yeah, that's it. Wow, we can get started here. Large. So, yeah. Um, so initially, my intent had not been to go into academia per se, because, you know, I knew nobody who was a professor. And I don't know whether you want me to start that early on, yes, but basically yes. I um, encountered during my undergraduate studies some research articles that I found very interesting and then went to a conference to which I applied by sending them my CV, which was very <laughs> unconventional, but I had no idea how these, you know, how academia works. So I sent them my CV and they invited me to come. And it was there that I saw a phenomenal keynote by somebody whose name is Bruno Frey in Switzerland. And so I reached out to him as I was still doing my master's and then we started working together. And then I, he basically showed me um, how interesting it is to be an academic that you can think for yourself and and analyze questions that you think are important instead of regurgitating what others say or just accepting it as facts you know thinking rethinking um you know i initially wanted to go into the diplomatic service um which is also i think a very interesting career but then that made me just um change my my goals and aspirations if you will and then i entered academia and i came from zurich that's where i did my phd with bruno frey um did a postdoc at harvard and then came to ucla in 2016. interesting how would your life be different if you had gone into diplomacy or what are you doing right now that includes any of those elements who um I would probably be moving house even more often. I mean, I did move house quite a bit, but uh, now I've become a little more stationary <laughs> since 2016. I believe this is the longest I've ever lived at a given place after I left my you know, parents' home. Um, I believe there are some elements where being diplomatic <laughs> helps, even in academia. Um, but... But of course, you know, the, the ability and the freedom to do to work on what I believe is important or where I might be able to contribute most. Um, I think I would rather put it that way, where I could be able to contribute most. I think that that freedom to decide on what I want to work on, that is something that, of course, I believe few jobs give you um, if you're outside of academia. We like freedom. Freedom is <laughs> yeah. great. It gives you this I'm not limited essence that humans are built for. We're not here to be limited in some capacity. I always think about that. Mm -hmm. Your category. So you've been many different places, actually. When you think of the countries, what countries do you identify with along with your path? Um, I don't really identify with a given country. Um, I also, if anything, I would say I'm, you know, if I introduce myself, I'm German or European. You know, I grew up in Europe, basically. Now I'm in the United States. I have started to raise children in the U.S., which, of course, gives you a completely different perspective um, on a country. Um, I've lived, I've been part of some very, mo some monumental changes in the U.S. and then witnessed those in Europe from a distance. It's like I, I don't really 
for me, like national boundaries don't play so much of a role unless when we're talking about voting, of course, but um, I'm not able to vote here yet. <laughs> so yeah. We'll toss that in at some point. That's cool. Hopefully. That's neat. So that's nice. And uh, Europe and also here. And now, as far as your research, you have a few categories that I am quite interested in. Social relationships, incentives, how it leads to innovation and other categories, but also awards. Mm -hmm. And can we tell people about the book that you had written prior? about yes. honors and awards. Can you yes. tell us about that? That was with Bruno Frey. And um, it was published in 2017 at Oxford University Press. The title is Honors versus Money, the Economics of Awards. And really uh, what we do here is also take stock of the literature and also just the prevalence to document the prevalence of awards in all different sectors. You see them in the military, of course, as people know, in the public sector, um, in voluntary volunteer organizations, of course, may use of awards and non-financial incentives but then you might think and academia <laughs> academia is of course everybody knows the nobel prizes um, but but then you might think you know maybe it's not such a, an important phenomenon in the private sector where all that counts should be money and of course that's not the case so we kind of document the importance of awards in different fields and then we also discuss what has been shown what we know what we knew um, up until then and also show a, shine a light on future avenues um, we discuss a lot of our work also in the book of course um, yeah so that's basically what we did taking stock with that book and also it was very helpful in communicating with practitioners or policymakers, you know people outside of academia who might not just like myself might not you know even know which journals are good <laughs> so communicating with other stakeholders with other actors in society that's really a main um, role that this book has played or a main function, um, a main value that this book has created. Um, and then, of course, from there on, I we did a lot more work and then the collaborations unfolded with, with we were able to work with other organizations with um, I now mostly do field experiments where I collaborate closely with organizations to address some of the key issues that they are facing and at the same time contribute to research and to our academic, to our knowledge of the effects of awards and non-financial incentives and the importance of how social relationships uh, play into that. Yeah, but the initial motivation for studying awards and non-monetary incentives was that those types of incentives are prevalent. We see them all over the place, and yet we have a fairly limited understanding about their actual effects. So of course, it is one thing to observe that the best get awards and they stay the best and you compare them to the control group or to those who were runners up, you might conclude, well, it seems like these awards are also motivating, they serve some function. But per definition, or at least in most cases, when the awards are well done, then it should be those who deserve the award, who, who are the best who get awards. Like meritocracy. In, if it were, is based on merit, indeed. And then if we compare merit or, or productivity afterwards, we wouldn't be able to say that the award had any additional effect. In fact, for all it's worth, the award winners could even start to rest on their laurels and we would still see them outperforming the others, right? So that, that's one question, you know, how can we study the effects of awards? Do they have an effect? Do they have the intended effects? Are there some individuals who respond more to them than others? And and then, of course, there is a such a variety of awards, which it, 
makes it very int very interesting but also challenging to study awards and that class of non-financial incentives mm -hmm. because you see titles you see statutes some of them come with money so there we're talking about what are the interactions between the monetary and the signaling values of awards others are purely just you know without money just symbolic and um but they are discretionary maybe somebody important gives this award or maybe the award past award recipients include important people and so that contributes to the value of this award but all of those dimensions we really st still are just at the very beginning of understanding how they shape the value of awards and of course one other thing is the scarcity of awards you know that's true what are some examples of awards that are used in, uh, let's see, companies or academia that have been successful and they don't have a monetary connection directly? What are some that come to mind? Not a monetary. Oftentimes you see awards that, that come with some Both. kind of monetary component. Um, and right off the top of my head, I would not be able to mention one where we can, in the in the field rule out that there was any part that part of their possible effects we don't know right we have really studied a, f a limited number of awards the effects of those and when we study observational data it's very hard to disentangle cause and effect so that's why i um in fact that was one major advantage of one um, a field experiment that I ran with Wikipedia with a community of Wikipedians because this is a unique context where people so you might know that encyclopedia right Wikipedia yes. <laughs> and and in fact it's run and maintained by volunteers millions of volunteers and they do this it's intriguing they do this they invest all their time and effort into the this the provision of this public good using pseudonyms. So I would be economist one, two, three. You economist would not, one, two, three. Uh, that's not my real one. <laughs> but uh, just to illustrate, yes, um, I'm happy to take on that hat. And um, so this really in the offline world has no implications that what, whatever I'm doing there. And so in that context, I then started studying the effects of an award scheme um, on newcomers, newcomer retention specifically, because that is a main issue that Wikipedia, the community is grappling with. But, and also that's quite, um, you know, that's a, a widespread concern for many organizations. How can we retain um, our contributors or our employees for that matter. And so that's what I then, that's why this Wikipedia uh, study fulfills quite an important purpose, at least in my view, in that it allows us to study purely symbolic awards because these awards are given to people who operate under pseudonyms. And on top of that, it's just a newcomer award. So it's not like a Nobel Prize that shows that you're a genius, um, but rather some, you know, token to welcome and to appreciate the first efforts that people have made to contribute to the public to wikipedia and and then the second purpose of this experiment what was important here was that i was able to well, first off set up set up set up an award scheme with reputable wikipedians on the award board so it's not like a random token that some outsider starts handing out but really an important award scheme that i modeled on um state honor systems it's the Edelweiss Award. It's a flower symbol and so on. Um, and, and then I randomized who among the set of contenders of newcomers who would have all deserved a newcomer award would get the award and who just never heard about it. 
And so then by comparing the treatment with the control group, I was able to show that this purely symbolic award had a significant impact and it increased the retention rate in the following month by 20%. And then moreover, it had these long lasting effects where this, this difference between the control group and the treatment group in their retention rate, what fraction of people remain active, um, continues to be statistically significant for an entire year after the initial award bestowal. What are some of the strongest personality features or qualities that the person takes in from having something to signal to others that I maintain this ranking? Is it, does it connect with the human interest in maintaining a position? Can you tell us about signaling and position? Yeah. So I think um, there are two elements there um, which still need to be disentangled. And by the way, I have a um, paper with Sandy Campbell, who's a PhD student at Berkeley and Uri Gnizi, who's at UCSD San Diego, where we also we show that we can really make much progress in the study of awards by thinking about them from three dimensions. In, in, in terms of three dimensions, the tangible component, is there money or not, for instance, um, then the social signaling function, to your point. So I might be now at a higher rank or I might get this award and now there's an effect on my peers, even on third parties who might have never heard of me outside of the field, right? And they see that I got award X and then uh, infer that I might be, you know, a top player in a given field or somebody might. <laughs> um, and then there's the self-signaling function as well. And I believe that's a very important one. I get an award, somebody gets an award, what signal does this send to to them about their own ability, for example. And also it has, of course, a relational component, social relationships. So one of the interesting dimensions, I believe, in the study of awards is when we look at there is on the one hand, there are confirmatory awards that are basically automated. You know, it, the, the performance criteria are stipulated ex ante and you know exactly what to reach. It's very much that's what I consider gamification. You can have a computer for all it's worth and just, you know, give people badges and whatnot automatically as they cross certain thresholds, which can be motivating. But there's a whole different set of incentives, which is what the Wikipedia paper, in fact, mostly studied, which is about discretionary awards and recognition, where there was somebody who decided they were under no obligation to reward me or to to tell give me any feedback. And yet, just like you did, um, and yet they decided to take a moment and say, listen, by the way, what you did was great. And or or we appreciate what you did, that your efforts to contribute. And that has a strong relational component because this now could not be automated. It's it's the very the very decision to to recognize somebody. And this can be informal, too. Right. So this doesn't have to be a formal award scheme. This could even be behind closed doors. And what are and that now gets to this other component, which we also discuss in the paper with Sandy Campbell and Uri Knizi. What are the implications of having an audience witness what you're doing? There's a social to your point to come back. There is a rank and social hierarchy component when others see it. But then there might also be different implications for the self signals um, that that I get from this from receiving this award if it's private versus public. So you see, there are so many nuances in the study of awards that makes it so fascinating, where in other cases, analyzing monetary incentives, there are some, there are of course also important nuances, but the, I think um, 
the study of non-financial incentives is that on steroids, you know, <laughs> so you have like even more complexity that we have to think about and which explains also why I have spent quite some time, you know, doing um, more theory oriented papers, trying to think about frameworks that can be useful and that we can then start filling out, um, fleshing out with empirical work. I like a few things there. One, break it into three dimensions. There's the physical tangible. Then there's the signaling. That's the obvious type of signaling. Then there's the signaling to yourself, which can include, uh, it can affect your self-esteem. And also the one that you mentioned, the type of uh, award that is not uh, fixed, but discretionary. Mm -hmm. That one, I see it as more appealing to your human nature because there's a decision from maybe a person or such on the other end, so it's more targeted to yourself. It's more personalized. Whereas the other one is like Indeed. you met the 90% metric and everybody who meets the 90% metric is going to get this award. It's not as tangible to you as a person. You can't feel it palpably as much. So it doesn't have that weight. That's an interesting point about the basically the personalization. You as a unique human being or that relationship mm -hmm. versus, you know, you're just another person. Um, how are they called these things that drop off the anyway you're just another person who's crossed a given threshold um but it could have been done by anybody right had they achieved it and then it depends on of course how do those um those confirmatory awards as we call them in a 2016 paper and later also in the book how do these confirmatory awards um gain value so for there it's very important where where are those thresholds are they achievable um are they still somewhat you know um, showing that there was some some effort required that not everybody crosses the given threshold. So there we come back to your point about rank as well. That is another distinction. Is it an absolute threshold? Everybody who crosses a given line gets it? Or is it relative such that it induces a hierarchy among players in the field? And there can be resistance to that. And it depends also on the on the the relation ships in or the the some might say norms in a the relational norms if you will um in a given field if people do not like to be put in a ranking such as in the case of artists and then you have prizes literary prizes there's been an outrage about some of those because they are perceived as forcing people into a into a tournament into some competition which some actors you know are very reluctant uh, resistant against and um and then another question is how can the pushback right what what way of pushing back against some bodies deciding to hand out awards like literary prizes you can you have to be basically at the top of the ranking in order to criticize the award or else you're just seen as somebody who didn't win and that's why you criticize it and so there are such interesting dimensions in the study of awards and just following following what happens in the world and and then thinking about how can we make sense of that so that we recently published um it just came out in psychological review a paper about uh, that's whose title is relational incentives theory where we try to you know make sense of how awards and social relationship structures inter uh, not awards sorry incentives writ large mm -hmm. and social relationship structures inter intersect but some of that you can see reflected if you have a field that's predominantly oriented around let's say equality matching where everybody wants to be on the same level or or communal sharing we feel like we are one 
Um, and all of a sudden you have actors copy paste from other domains, a ranking scheme and push that onto those actors. You see the reluctance um, because that that ranking scheme is not does not conform to the relational the, to the predominant relational model in the field. Right. That makes sense. It wouldn't fit sometimes if you put a certain type of requirement scheme on, let's say, an artistic field or maybe a literature. It's more limiting. Whereas if it was in a different field that was more numerical or sales oriented, something like that, then, okay, this makes sense. But here it's like you're taking away from our creative endeavor by trying to put it into these qualifications that now we're trying to meet them, which is cutting away from our creative nature. Very nice you actually that you mentioned sales. Sales is because you might wonder, well, maybe it's not the human nature. Maybe we don't want to be ranked per se. But no, there are fields where it's even expected that you have a hierarchy incentive where there's somebody who decides I'm going to make these the top actors and leave the others on the bottom and we induce a, a, a race um, among those actors we can where where that's not just tolerated but in fact even expected so for instance in sales might be that all remains to be studied of course right um but it's it's um it stands to reason that sales would be one context where people also self-select into a field because they're like okay yeah i'm feel fine to compete on insurance sales for example or or then we have sports in many cases not in all but in many sports contexts it's it would be like <laughs> what is what would the sports be if it wasn't you know for um very competitive although in many cases it's also again automated so anyway we're now i'm getting into the details here but um military is another example right where and there may be other reasons presumably efficiency but that's something that actually we're right now testing also where we study different relational models in different um different organizations but i should also say that um so this whole so the um discussion of relational models that is a th that goes back to a theory um, that was initially proposed and, and developed, really not proposed, developed by uh, one of my now co-authors, Ellen Fisk, who's an anthropologist at UCLA as well, that I'm, I'm hoping that many of your listeners um, know or will check out as well. You may speak to her at some point. Who knows? That's cool. Now, one thing that comes to mind on signaling is how do you or how does an organization do signaling or give economists one, two, three, the right level such that it's letting people know economist one, two, three is taking care of this level of material, but not that economist one, two, three is above all of you and can just smush all of you whenever economist one, two, three feels like it. How do you make those distinctions so that their ranking is representative of what they are bringing to the table versus like, uh, then they'll rest on their laurels and Get too comfortable hmm. or even become overconfident potentially um so i think there are several several aspects or sub questions in in your question one is um about how to calibrate awards and give them to those who are deserving but also um somehow tr try to avoid cases where um people become either rest on their laurels or in fact become too confident and so start to assume too much risk which may harm the organization and there is some very nice work by Ulrike Malmondier and Tate um, 
where they looked at CEOs and their behaviors after getting these business accolades. And then you see, you know, the next thing you know, they sit on more boards, they start writing books and so on. So um, there might be some value destroyed here. But um, so so one, but you could also see, and that hasn't been shown yet, but you could imagine um, or think of situations where somebody receives an award and then becomes overly, um, what's the right term here? complacent on the one hand but also perhaps um, starts treating others with disrespect and that would be of course an, a consequence that would be disastrous you could also see so so that's that's something that i think it shows the importance that organizations always try to test or at least get some data on the effects of their incentive schemes writ large or the awards specifically how it might impact people's performance and behavior going forward right because it's hard to say ex ante how to design these awards to and or who to give awards to um, or incentives rewards um, sometimes you might not know how a given individual you know responds so it's important True. to test it's important to analyze and fortunately we see more and more of that where organizations collaborate and actually reach out and um, which is nice nowadays not when i was a phd student but now reach out um, because they realize the importance of testing what the effects are of their incentives and and um, then reach out to academics and then we start running and thinking about how can we design field experiments to study the actual effects and sometimes you find that in fact, what people had thought is a good measure um, of motivating people has negative effects, unintended negative consequences on people's behavior. We have several studies that have found that, um, and I'm happy to go into that, but <laughs> um, um, let me know when <laughs> I get back to it. Keep that one in mind. I have two things in mind. One is the nice, you just mentioned they're now reaching out. There's a nice feature in life. Somebody mentioned that, I don't know if it was in sales or other category that uh, for a long part of your life you're underpaid and then at some point you're probably paid and then you're overpaid after that and this is the good part there's the part where you're like reaching out reaching out nothing's happening and there's a the point where re people are reaching out to you and there's that after part this is the good part that's nice to get to and then you can work more towards your mission because now things are coming towards you and people know who you are versus earlier everything's a battle a struggle okay i have to find them oh they don't know who i am i have to explain this oh it's a lot so that's a limiting force so i like to mention it's nice to be on that side there are some, there is wonderful research on status effects or the Matthew effect, as it's called, the rich get richer. I'm not saying that I belong to that, like that group, but for eminent scientists, for example, how they, you know, even if you try to hold ability and performance constant, they get more and more attention from others. Of course, that's what these status signals and awards also serve to fulfill um, or, or what they, the function, one of the functions that they have is they, they influence the the allocation of attention maybe nowadays it's not only monetary incentives but in fact perhaps even predominantly attention if we think about what's scarce economics being the science of scarcity if you will what is scarce well of course money is still scarce but then attention nowadays and if we think about um awards one one reason why they might be motivating or recognition is that they give you others attention which otherwise um you know, in, in a positive way, as opposed to, you know, doing things for, for attention's sake that might not benefit you at, after all. That's true. Attention is a huge item now, much more so, I think, probably than 30 years ago. I'm not sure if it was as hefty 30 years ago. Now it's like, what can be nice. grabbed? Yeah. yeah. 
And then the other element is when you describe the, or I was describing the ranking system, I, whenever I think of signaling or representing somebody at their level, if you don't represent them, it's like they're under-recognized. But then if you go too far, it's like you've spoiled them. I always think about it like the worst thing you can do to people is spoil them because now it's like their natural uh, effort-based activity is messed up. It's like if you had a computer program that said you have to do this and then this will happen and then this, but you take out the effort-based part, it would just go to this and then burn and the machine would burn because <laughs> there was no like limiting normal reality element there. I always think of spoiling as the worst thing you can do to a person. Mm. Do you ever look at um, awards and like, going too far and uh, spoiling an individual. Yeah, so I think that's a really important point. Shining also because, too much of a light, yeah, even though yeah, shining yeah, yeah. light is good. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. You could see how they are also, if one award, because, so that's another um, big frontier in the study of awards is also looking at these, at the system level more. So how one award affects, you know, the, there might be cumulative effects of getting different awards and there, there are awards that are given for research others for instance just to talk about academics here research but then also service other awards more for service others for teaching and so on um and yeah i think that that there could certainly be some kind of spoiling in the sense that people get too or that there is an that there is a um a distribution then of prestige that go that that's basically very heavily skewed, which is probably the case, yeah. right? And because then those, if the Matthew effect holds, as it seems to, from the research that's out there, then those who got initial awards will get more and more attention, and then they might also get other benefits that allow them to perform resources that allow them to perform even more, and hence you get an even more uneven um, allocation of attention and prestige and so on. So that's spoiling could definitely be be an issue and the other the other um aspect to take into consideration especially if we're talking about an organization with well-defined boundaries is that there are also non-recipients and what are the effects on non-recipients and it always comes up because per definition if an award is held scarce then there will be presumably more well then there will be more non-recipients than recipients and if the effect on non-recipients is negative in that it discourages them or they start to basically just say think they they are not good and will never be good and have this fixed mindset adopt a fixed mindset potentially then definitely that would not benefit the organization or the field but in other cases you see it's very well designed and in fact i think it's 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 very it's fascinating to think about how awards can be designed so that they create role models for instance um, or that they they trigger the, what sociologists call basking in reflected glory, where I might identify with somebody, think about sports, right, soccer. So I might be an Eintracht Frankfurt fan, might. <laughs> and when they win, right, I feel just as good as if I myself had made some had some achievement but i of course i did not do anything to influence their success and so right but in we can imagine how you have a if some if you have a mentor or a mentee and that mentor or mentee receives recognition how that could have positive spillover effects on yourself because you you're happy for them because yeah because you perhaps to some extent if we think about identity you might identify more closely with them or as belonging to some kind of group with them and so there are it's not the case that there those those 
externalities always have to be negative there could also be or, or that that it's all a zero-sum game or even worse a negative sum game <laughs> uh, but that um that in fact there could also be a growing we could be growing the pie right and to to think about this um but the question is how do we get there how do we decide how can the system be set up such that those that that there is a diverse set of individuals or groups and that's another dimension groups can also get awards who get awards or who get recognition and then there are different forms of recognition um, diversity in uh, the recipients of awards and also in the nom nominee channel you know for awards where you have nominations is another big issue that there's now some fascinating research on but we need to do much more to to start looking at how that how awards play a role in diversifying a field or also in fostering inclusion in a given field the sense of belonging for underrepresented minorities for instance there's a lot of different elements to look at which is wonderful now one thing that comes to mind but before i go to that would we want to include any on the research papers that you had just mentioned or you were going to mention when i was speaking of signaling oh the same yeah. thing comes to mind. so that's not only about not actually not so much about signaling in the first case for mm -hmm. it um especially so we had where where awards backfire basically they have unintended effects and if the organizations don't study the effects or don't try to analyze those effects of the incentive schemes that they plan to set up or that they are using um then they, there might be costs that they don't see the problem with awards is that oftentimes they are cheaper than other incentives which is nice but there might be hidden costs and and that's the case for non-financial incentives of course um more generally of course they can still have costs if it comes to setting up a ceremony and so on but usually they tend to be cheaper and um so one paper was where we found those hidden effects those hidden downsides was um in the context of schools where there's a lot of effort to increase attendance um and the there is even legislation that suggests that school leaders hand out and recognize perfect attendance so that they hand out awards um, to recognize students. And um, this is joint work with Carly Robinson, Monica Lee and Todd Rogers. And here and this was published um, in OBHDP, um, I believe, in 2021. And uh, what we show is that it was so we studied, we said, OK, let's test this and in a field experiment and uh, those awards will be sent to students homes. And we let's add a nuance here where we not where we look at awards that are prospectively announced, where you know that if you have a perfect month of attendance, you will get the award versus awards that are given retroact retrospectively where, well, because you had a perfect month of attendance, you get this recognition, the perfect attendance award. And what we showed was that surprisingly, those, those retrospective awards that basically honor you for your past perfect attendance led to worse attendance afterwards. And then we also look at mechanisms and it seems to be the case that this basically legitimated students to rest on their laurels, to slack, to be more absent going forward because awards are meant to signal something that's, uh, to, to, to um, awards are meant to um, honor something that is extraordinary, not the norm. So now the school is telling me my perfect attendance is not a, the norm, right? On a dimension that doesn't really count. It's not about being gifted or able or good at sports. And so here we find that, yeah, I might just, you know, relax a little going forward. So that was one case where we found backfiring effects. 
Um, and in another very recent case, um, publication that just came out at PNAS, uh, we did a field experiment with physicians. And um, this was led by two um, doctoral students, Joey Reef and Justin Zhang, and is joint work with other also co collaborators at Anderson, Heng Chen Dai and Craig Fox, and then physicians at UCLA Health. And um, here we studied, the, the goal was to see whether non-financial incentives could be used to motivate physicians to do more preventive care, like ordering their patients to do colorectal cancer screenings, mammograms, and so on. And there's a lot of interest in in motivating physicians to do that from policymakers, hospital leaders and so on we can see why right reducing costs over the long run and and so on preventative exactly do more preventive pre preventative care and um, what's also an advantage is that there are in many cases there are uh, uh, metrics that are being used in our case it's called the health maintenance score where that physicians um, get that shows them how well they are doing you know how many what fraction out of all recommended preventive care um, exams for a given patient they actually ordered and the patient then fulfilled so how good are they at preventive care and so we collaborated we said okay let's study whether in this context where there are also financial incentives already to do to do more preventive care whether we can move the needle by um, studying non-financial incentives and specifically something that's very widely used um, showing who are the top 25 perf physicians in a given time period and also then showing people where they rank. So it's a peer comparison intervention, basically. And what we found, and then we also said, okay, let's also, however, and that was our secondary dependent variable in the pre-registration, um, since physician burnout is a big concern, even before, the, before COVID, we said, let's also look at job satisfaction and burnout. And so then when we got the data, we analyzed it. And what we find is zero detectable effect on performance of those of the peer comparison intervention. However, a significant negative effect on well-being at work. And so, so reduced job satisfaction and higher burnout. And some of that even persists four months after the intervention was taken back, was discontinued, had been discontinued. Um, and then we go into why that is the case, but I'll keep it short. There we see, again, another important um, case where non-financial incentives have costs, a significant toll on physicians' well-being at work. A few things come to mind. One of them, right there, comparison is the thief of joy. So sometimes when there is comparison rankings that can reduce well-being after the fact because, oh, I'm not this because I was this, but that person's doing this and has nothing to do with you really, but it's just the joy remover in a way, which is what happens a lot on social spaces, which leaves people. On social what? Like social spaces on the internet. Ah, yes. They're always leaving mm -hmm. people feeling not so well, a good percentage and then a small percentage there. Another thing I want to point out is I always notice when something matches the same category of research because you are studying individuals that recognize and the levels of signaling and what they represent. At the same time, when you are mentioning uh, papers, you are giving credit to <laughs> each of the individuals involved uh, specifically and informing their location in detail. And that's matching what you are researching. So it's kind of nice. Sometimes I notice that the what we look at, we usually also represent they match in some way. Yeah, I don't always, I try to do it. And then sometimes after a given interview, I realize, or a talk, I realize, oh, no, I did not. You know, so it's, 
And then, of course, you can't always mention everybody involved, which I know I have not, certainly not, but I'm trying, trying to get better. <laughs> it is noticed. And then now I wanted to check the link between incentives and innovation, if they are linked, how do individuals and organizations or academia, whatever it might be, use incentives or some sort of uh, propelling force to cause innovation to occur? Ah, yeah. How can that be? So that's a huge topic as well. Um, I go large on these always. Yeah, <laughs> very good. <laughs> I will focus on a very small niche that I can speak to. Um, of course, um, the Wikipedia paper also relates to that um, because it's, if you will, it's the crowdsourced innovation here or crowdsourced contributions to um, wide con society-wide contributions to this public good, if you will. Um, I have, I will focus now on the things that I know best, which is, you know, where I do some of my papers, um, where we've studied, and this is with Olivia Zhang and Karim Lakhani, <laughs> um, where we did... A, and co fantastic collaborators at NASA, where we ran a field experiment with NASA. Um, and the goal here was um, to look at how um, workers could be motivated, and by that I mean civil servants, but also contractors, how we could motivate people within the organization, which is very hierarchical, as we know, yes. um, could be motivated to engage more in internal crowdsourcing where they have a platform an online platform um, that allows people across the organization to basically say here is a question that we are facing we have not yet found a solution does anybody have an idea or help others out chime into those discussions and it's all meant to basically be like a peer-based crowdsourcing platform use everybody's thinking Sorry? Use everybody's thinking. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes, you know, the wisdom might come from unexpected places, which the, my co-author's work has shown. And um, now what we studied was, it's very hard. I've seen this now also in other cases where I've worked with organizations to get those, of course, to get the platform started. It's the usual chicken and egg problem. If there's nobody posting really cool challenges, questions, then there won't be people checking out whether they have any solution to contribute and vice versa. If there's nobody to contribute um, on the one side of the platform to contribute potential answers, I won't even take the, the effort to post my problem there. And then on top of that comes the fact that I might not want to post post problems that I'm not able to solve because what does it show signal about me? <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, so the question was how can we motivate people to engage more and to even come to that platform, which is non-trivial because unlike our Facebook apps and, um, or, or Instagram, Meta and so on, they, every, all those firms, they try, they go out of their way to make it seamless, right. To make me stay locked in for NASA and other organizations there are security protocols that make it such that you every time you have to go back retrieve your password get back in and then see whether you could contribute so there are all these barriers and um, what we tested were different forms of recognition to see whether they could be effective in motivating people to come back to this platform and see whether they can contribute and also learn about what's going on across different silos of the organization. And so we studied on the one hand, recognition in front of peers. If I tell you, you know, you can be recognized in front of your peers uh, versus recognition from in front of management. And we found that the only incentive that um, was effective that we have evidence for its effectiveness was the recognition in front of management so basically we 
that seems to suggest, of course, we need more research on that, that we need the incentives that's congruent, that fits the current established relational, predominant relational model in this organization, a hierarchy incentive in a highly or you know, authority ranking oriented organization where there's a hierarchy um, in NASA to basically shine a light and place the trail towards towards this peer-based way of interacting and solving problems. So that's one way where, you know, we study whether incentives can be used, whether recognition can be used as an incentive to get people more engaged and to even have interest in collaborating um, and engaging with the crowdsourcing platform. Mm. And I think in general, of course, we talked a lot about already, you know, um, the Matthew effects, which have been studied um, of awards in science, how it can um, lead the work from scientists to get more and more attention or citations from others. Um, so that's also where innovation and and recognition and incentives intersect, of course. Another interesting question is how these incentives shape people's preferences for collaboration. And that's something where, again, we could go, I would have many hypotheses, but I'll stop here. Um, you know, how do, how do those, how does recognition shape pe who people collaborate with um, and then the credit that they get for those collaborations? Collaboration is a big deal. I always think about it that two, three, four, ten people can do a hundred times what one person can do. You are trapped when you're just one person. There's only so much. And then they fill in gaps that you don't have. So if you can incentivize that in some way, then those gaps will not be in place. And then if you have a gap in your ability, it lasts for, it could be decades before you find that out. But if there's three other people, it, it might be two months before you figure out the pieces that you're missing or somebody else, you delegate it to them and they take care of it. Mm -hmm. And now you're not missing that for the next three decades. Separation of labor <laughs> <laughs> and the importance of delegation as well. But also it could be peer-based, you're right. And indeed relative strengths advantages or who knows maybe even just because of it complementarities because we talk to one another we discover things that oftentimes i mean i always talk about my research with my family and and tell them about it because i enjoy it so much but also you know that t talking to others with different perspectives of course gives me different ideas as well as you say yeah it's helpful it's important this just came to mind. Challenge question here. What's a difficulty in the field or something that is a challenge in your research? Something that comes up as a, oh no, that, all right, or a friction. Yeah. Um, there are many. The first one is, of course, the causal identification to study the effects of a given award. Because for that, in the best case, you're able to randomize who gets the award or who gets notified about the award's existence, which is a bit easier to do. But who gets the award is the the only instance where I was able to do this was with Wikipedia there. Um, and that was very carefully thought about so that it's not, you know, um, there's no... that negative consequences they would have all deserved it the non-winners didn't know about the award and so on so that's always challenging to randomize in the field and you can believe me i've contacted many an award giver to see we believe whether, you to see whether they'd be willing to randomize at least out of the set of candidates where i would even make the argument that it can be much better to randomize because it's fairer you know of course the problem is how can you con 
you know, if it's all transparent, then um, and we let people know that it was random, then of course the signaling function, the signaling value goes down. But if there was a set of potential candidates still, there's all this politicking that then happens and people pushing their candidates. That's why I think it would be better to randomize once people have crossed a certain uh, threshold, right? Where you'd say, okay, now everybody there, basically it's hard to say who's better. Now let's flip the coin. Um, so that's always a challenge, the causal identification in the field. If you take it to the lab, it's also challenging because you need to make the award meaningful and the recognition seem sincere, authentic. Um, and that's hard to do in the lab, of course. right? So you can cer study certain elements in the lab, but not, not all. Um, so that's more of a methods point now. I think substantively, um, it's challenging to disentangle the mechanisms why a given award had a given effect. And um, there's much we can do. Specifically also one element that I'm very interested in is the self-signaling function, how we can get at that. Oftentimes we just say, oh yeah, it's because of the social signaling, the status that it confers, but then there's still always the self-signaling somehow in there, right? And the other question is how do these incentives affect identity, one's sense of identity? That's a very interesting question that I'm intrigued by. And then also the relationships. That's really now what I'm also uh, focusing a lot on is um, fleshing out this relational incentives theory paper and doing empirical work on that to study it more systematically, um, make, um, you know, hypotheses, predictions, and then see, let's take that to the field and try to study it. But that's challenging because now you get me started, I could just go on. Um, but you see, it's, it's, it's great because it's a challenge and we love challenges, right? But it's this, how do you manipulate, I mean, exogenously vary, kind of influence people's relational model that they have? How do you try to make some people adopt a market pricing, um, market exchange, some people call it that, um, relational model and others to feel more like they are in a community and then yet others to feel to to adopt authority ranking or equality matching where everybody like among siblings so basically the the basic question is how do you manipulate people's relational models so that you can test their causal effects <laughs> um so that's one and then compounded how do you at the same time have a large enough sample to also manipulate the relate the, the incentive structure to manipulate what type of incentive do they get an incentive or not that comes into the picture or what type of incentive do they get right so so studying what i have done in the past like recognition discretionary incentives versus no incentive and so on. So that is a, a big challenge. So I would say, um, and I know this was a little bit more of a, you'd have to read the relational mod, relational incentives theory paper, and I'm happy to walk talk more about this, but at a high level, um, I mentioned methodological challenges, randomizing in order to find causal effects in the field. In the lab, making sure that the phenomenon that you study is well implemented, that is really about social recognition in the lab. That's the challenge there. So that's methods-wise. Uh, substantively, mechanisms, getting at mechanisms, especially understanding more the role of self-signaling. And, um, and then the second part is this studying how incentives interact with relationships, different types of relationships. 
good level of details there. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> and also, you can feel passion when passion is there. <laughs> that's a valid point. Now, maybe we'll go. On, maybe in the future, the one right there. We'll leave that possibly for the future. Where can on this discussion? Where can people find your general work, or your papers, or your material? Where can it be located? Yeah, so I have a personal website which is janagalus.com. Um, and there I upload everything and including the publications. So if people are faced with a paywall, they can at least see the final working paper there. Um, yeah, that's the best way I think to go. That's cool. I was on there and I saw the publications and they exist, which is nice. <laughs> Jana, on this discussion, I would like to thank you for having joined us, brought quite a bit of knowledge in the category of signaling social relationships, incentives, innovation, and more, and even telling us a little bit about your current research. Thank you. Thank you very much, Armand, for having me. Very glad to. <laughs>